BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And in two hours, mm, let's try that again. And in two hours, Bill Barr expected, invited to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Do you think he's going to show up? Ha <laughs> ha. No way after what happened yesterday. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's the Bill Press Show here on a Thursday, May 2nd, moving right into the month of May here. Two days down, and Bill Barr down for the count yesterday after a disastrous performance. In front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he tried to make the case that he did not, ex- that the, he did not spin the Mueller report, that he presented a truthful summary of the Mueller report, that he and Bob Mueller uh, agree on most things, and it didn't go over. It didn't go over with the Democrats on the committee, and it didn't go over with the American people. And, of course, the Republicans didn't care because all they, con- all they were concerned about was going back and um, reinvestigating Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, of all, i got to say, I've been watching this for a long time, been following the Congress, following hearings for a long time, sat through a lot of hearings myself. I've testified myself in front of Congress. I have never seen a disastrous uh, performance like we saw yesterday on the part of anybody, let alone an attorney general of the United States. And as several people pointed out afterwards, Jeff Tubin on CNN and many others, we did not see an attorney general of the United States. We saw Donald Trump's latest excuse for a defense attorney. It might as well have been Rudy Giuliani or Kellyanne Conway or Mick Mulvaney up there talking as as Bill Barr talking. So we got to get into that. Every single aspect of yesterday's hearing, that's where we're going to spend most of our time today and where we want to hear from you most about on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, the Bill Press Show Thursday, May 2nd. We'll get underway, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news 
So you'll hear a lot of people say, a lot of Republicans will say, nobody cares about the Mueller report, right? Nobody cares about the Mueller report. Most of America, they don't even care. Well, turns out that might not exactly be true because the Mueller report is now officially a bestseller. Oh, wow. Because they did publish an yeah, edition yeah. of Robert Mueller's investigation into the alleged ties between Russia and Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Well, just last week alone, it sold 42,000 copies. So people are buying it. People want to hear about it. People want to read the Mueller report. Did you buy your copy? Oh, you were here last week. No, I have my copy. I should have oh, brought it in. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. I so you can buy it. it. Oh, yeah. I brought it in every day. I got it at the local UPS store. They at put the UPS out, store? Oh, that's interesting. They put out an email to all their customers saying, we're, we're going to print up copies of the Mueller report. If you want one, you know, send a note in. So they printed them on demand. Right, two copies how, printed up. How interesting. Yeah, right across the street. No kidding. 25 bucks. Well, you know, great. There bound, you go. Bound with got, a spiral bound. Or, actually, I read the whole thing. So you got, you've got you got copies of the Mueller Report. I don't okay. know how well, you, you spent you, Easter weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, how I spent it. Very nice. Uh, so you remember, it was about a year and a half ago. Remember the mudslides in Montecito, California? Do I ever? Well, yeah. uh, here's a good story to come out of that. A year and a half later, there was a family there, uh, the name of the Strogoffs. They evacuated, and when they left, they had to leave their two cats. They couldn't oh. round up their cats in time, so they left the cats, and they hadn't seen them in a year and a half. Well, yesterday, <laughs> one of them showed back up. They evacuated. They came back. The house had been destroyed. Everything had been lost in the mudslide. They just assumed that their pets had not survived the ordeal. Well, the, the cat showed up yesterday. Seven-year-old uh, uh, Diamond is the name of the cat. Showed back up 475 <laughs> days later. Cats are survivors, baby. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, you want to get your daughter into Stanford? I got a deal for you. Six and a half million dollars. We can get her in. Then, of course, on top of that, you got to pay the tuition, which is about $75,000 a year. Man, what a mess. What a scandal. Hello, folks. Hello, everybody. Great to see you on the Bill Press Show. Here we go. The next two hours, we're going to hopscotch through the big news of the day, starting with that big Bill Barr hearing yesterday in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and a little bit else that's going on in the day. That certainly uh, occupied most of the news cycle yesterday, and it was quite a performance. We'll tell you all about it and get your comments on it, too. The Bill Press Show coming to you live on YouTube, youtube.com slash Show. Joining you, as we always do, on the radio, statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, and in Chicago, in the greater Chicago area, the great WCPT, that powerful foghorn, the powerful progressive voice of Chicago. Proud to be there as your morning offering, and thank you for joining us. And then we'll join you on Free Speech TV as well, looking at you on television. It is a, It was an incredible day yesterday. Uh, and let's just l listen to some of the sound. I hope you had a chance to get some of the uh, flavor of the hearing by 
tuning in or watching the uh, reruns or the clips last night. So the Attorney General comes up, and the question is, what does the Mueller report really say, and did your summary of the Mueller report accurately reflect the Mueller report, and do you stand by your summary today, or what do you say particularly about the letter which we discussed yesterday, the bombshell of a letter from Robert Mueller to Bill Barr saying, hey, your four-page summary is more spin than summary, and you really misrepresented what I meant to say in my report. Now we learn that was not the first letter. That was the second letter that Robert Mueller sent to Bill Barr because he was so upset about Barr's representation or misrepresentation. So that was the background for yesterday's hearing when Bill Barr stands up, Chairman Lindsey Graham uh, uh, offers the, uh, the oath, and Bill Barr says the first big lie of the day that he promises to tell the truth. You do solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give this committee is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, except you got Yes. Well, Democrats immediately said, hey, come on, you know, you are used the same Trump language, Trumpian language, um, in your new, in your summary, in your news conference, and here today, exonerating the president. Barr says, no, 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 that's not what I did. I didn't exonerate. I, I said that uh, we did not believe that there was sufficient evidence to establish an obstruction offense, which is the job of the Justice Department. Uh-huh. You know, there's a danger yeah. in him saying that, right? Because the, my biggest takeaway is we – because remember what Donald Trump and all of his allies said after the Mueller report came out and after Bill Barr said <laughs> no collusion multiple nope. times. No collusion, no obstruction, total exoneration. Total exoneration. Donald Trump said multiple times, yeah. all of his allies, this was total exoneration. And so did Bill Barr yeah. in his news conference. Yeah. Right? But so, now he's saying he didn't exonerate him. Yeah. Yeah, clearly he did. I think he used that word, but he certainly used the word no collusion and no obstruction of justice. And in that four-page summary we know, he made the decision, announced the decision that he was not going to file charges against the president for obstruction, obstruction of justice. What he didn't say was that in the actual report, there were 10 occasions where Donald Trump went out of his way to try to obstruct justice. In most cases, he was thwarted by the fact that senior aides would not follow his, follow out his orders. So I thought the one of the cheekiest moments in the hearing was when Bill Barr said, "Come on, you got to stop playing politics with this letter. We're out of it, and we have to stop using the criminal justice <clears throat> process as a political weapon." When he, in <laughs> fact, was there doing just that, he used the criminal justice system as a weapon. When he did his four-page summary, which, again, remember, um, Robert Mueller said, took him completely out of context and did not represent the severity of the conclusions he reached in his report. Bill Barr used the system of justice as a political weapon when he gave his news conference, totally exonerating the president, two hours before they released the final port report. And Bill Barr used the political justice system as a, uh, I mean, the criminal justice system as a political weapon yesterday 
in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. As far as the letter goes, Bill Barr says, oh, snitty. Oh. The, letter, the letter's a bit snitty, and I think oh. it was probably written by one of his staff people. Can you imagine? Snitty. Yeah. What? I mean, the special counsel's here for two years. And he's supposedly, Bill Barr's one of his best friends, right? And he just throws it on the That's what we've bus. been told, right? Yeah. You know, that they're they're good friends. Their wives are in the same Sunday school class together. They know each other very, very well. And then here he is in front of America saying... The letter's a bit snitty, and I think yeah. it was probably written by one of yeah. his staff people. A little snitty. Come on. <laughs> Remember, it reminded me when, uh, when uh, in 2000, when George Bush called... Uh, when Al Gore called George Bush to say, oh, yeah. you know, I conceded, but I'm taking back my concession because it looks like there could be some outstanding votes and we're going to have to do a little recount. And Bush got really pissed. And Al said something like, you don't have to get snitty. I, I think snippy. he actually said snippy. Or, or maybe it was snitty. It was but it was something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't yeah. be so. The letter's a bit snitty. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then Barr went under some uh, tough questioning by the Democrats, I thought. Um, uh, <clears throat> I want to tell you my highlights of the hearing, but let's listen to some of the... Of course, there were three 2020 presidential candidates on there, each of them seeking to uh, make an impression uh, and do their job, too, by the way. That's what they were there for. Uh, Cory Booker first. Your willingness to seem to brush over this and, and use words like the American people should be grateful. What's in this report? Nobody should be grateful. Yes, nobody should be grateful for the lies that Bill Barr has told. Uh, Kamala Harris, who did an excellent job, Kamala Harris says, and, and she's making a point that I made in my notes watching the hearing several times, it seemed to me like Bill Barr had not read the report. There were several times when he said, where's that in the report? And, and the Democrat would say, page, boom, 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 volume one, volume two, and Barr said, I didn't know that was in there sometime. I mean, he seemed to be clueless, as Amy uh, Kamala Harris points out. I think you've I've made seen, it clear that of, you've not looked I've at the evidence. We can move on. I've I think it, you've made it clear, sir, that you've not looked at the evidence, and we can day. move on. The other point where I thought Kamala Harris really scored, she stopped Bar, uh, Bill Barr in his tracks when she said, has the White House ever suggested that you uh, launch an investigation into anybody else? Barr couldn't answer it. And he said, mm, mm, well, I don't know what you mean by suggest. And she said, well, uh, how about inferred? Yeah, it depends on what your definition of how is. How about encouraged? I mean, she went through about five words, you know, and Barr kept saying, well, he said, we've had conversations, but I wouldn't say they actually suggested. Meaning, yes, they have. Trump has told him, you know what Trump has told him, you got to investigate Hillary Clinton. She said, she's the one that colluded with the Russians. At any rate, good for Kamala Harris. Uh, and Amy Klobuchar, again, getting in, basically saying, did you read what Robert Mueller concluded? You look at the totality of the evidence. That's what I learned when I was in law school. And then somebody had to um, just rip the Band-Aid off, you know, stop being nice, just lay it out there. And once again, it was Maisie Hirona. Boy, I, she's really raised uh, up in, in my estimation. Not just this time, but she proved it again yesterday. She is one tough lady. Uh, so she just called him out. You lied to Congress. That's it. That's it. Yeah. You, you lied to Congress. lied to Congress. 
Right to his face. Right. You're a liar. You are a liar. And in fact, she said, they might as well. You're as bad as any of those other flunkies down at the White House. Now, the American people know that you are no different from Rudy Giuliani or Kellyanne Conway or any of the other people who sacrificed their once decent reputation for the grifter and liar who sits in the Oval Office. Whoa! Grifter and liar that sits in Talk the Oval Office. Talk about an insult being compared to Kellyanne Conway or Rudy Giuliani. Oh, man. Yeah, right? <laughs> that would ruin my day <laughs> if someone compared me to them. Well, that was just too much for Lindsey Graham. Oh, man, how could she insult his boy? You've slandered this man. Yeah, what Every I sort of want to know is how do we get how do we get to this point? Yeah, I do not so, think so, that I'm slandering get to the point anyone. All, all I can say, Mr. Chairman, I am done. Thank you very much. And you Boom. slandered this man Boom. from top Woo. to bottom. Lindsay. Go get him, Lindsay. Yeah. How dare you say this man. stuff about this man? <laughs> slandered him. Oh, man. What a hearing. So here, here's the thing that got me. You know, four months ago, when he was nominated, everybody said, oh, at last Donald Trump's got a grown-up, right? Because Bill Barr, four months ago, had a reputation in this town, which I guess shows you how easy it is to get a good reputation in Washington, D.C., right? Just you live long enough. That's about it. But people thought of Bill Barr as a um, one of the most respected attorneys in Washington, a conservative, yes, but who had had some impressive experience, worked for the CIA. He was former attorney general under George H.W. Bush, got a lot of people off during the Iran-Contra thing. So not somebody whose policies we'd always agreed, always agreed with, but was considered a pro, respected by people on both sides of the aisle. Boy, that reputation is done. It is trashed. He has zero credibility left because he has proven to be nothing but a total Donald Trump flunky. He's proven to be an attorney general who is not serving the American people, who is not there for all the American people. He is there. He sees his role, obviously, as a defense attorney for Donald Trump. He's Donald Trump's hired gun. That's all Bill Barr is uh, in that position of attorney general. And so, um, I mean, the couple of things that, that, that I thought were the, were, the, were the highlights with the lies that he told, um, and, and just to get specific, the first time he said <clears throat> four times under oath, no, he said under oath two or three times yesterday, anyhow, that he didn't know that Bob Mueller had any problems with his summary of the report. And he said that under oath, April 9, in front of the House Judiciary Committee, when he was asked by Congressman Charlie Crist of Florida, did you know anything about Mueller or his people not being happy with what you sent out? And under oath, Bill Barr said, no. He didn't, was, aware, was not aware of that. Let's go back to the timetable. I wrote it down here. March 22nd is when Bob Mueller handed his report to the, to the Attorney General. March 24, two days later, is when Bill Barr sent out his four-page so-called summary. March 25 is when Bob Mueller sent the first letter to Bill Barr saying, what the hell? What were you saying? 
March 27, Robert Mueller followed that up with a second letter. March 27th, okay, remember the date. In that second letter, Mueller says, we quoted this yesterday, give it to you again. Your four pages, quote, did not fully capture the context, the nature, and the substance of our work. And because of that, quoting Mueller again, that four-page summary threatens to undermine a central purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel to assure full public confidence in the outcome of the investigation. Again, that was written by Robert Mueller on March 27. Let's continue the timeline. April 9, two weeks later, Bill Barr is asked under oath by Charlie Crist from Florida, did you know that whether or not Bob Mueller agreed with you or not? Oh, I forgot one thing. The day after Bill Barr got the letter on the 27th, March 28, he called Robert Mueller, and they had a telephone conversation about it. So then bounce forward in April 9, and Bill Barr says, under oath, no, I didn't know anything about that. You freaking lie. That appears to be a lie. Yeah. And Pat Leahy caught him on that lie yesterday, and, and Mueller didn't, I mean, Barr didn't know really where to go. He couldn't go. And, you know, he just, well, I know, no, I know what he said. He said that Mueller, this is, this is his excuse, that what Mueller was, he had no, he said Mueller had no problem with my four-page summary. He just didn't like the way it was being played in the media. And as I pointed out yesterday on some interview, that, that, that's just nonsense. The reason it was being played as total exoneration in the media, because that's all the media had, was the four-page misleading spin put out by Bill Barr. So, yes, Mueller was concerned about Barr's representation. Again, misrepresentation. You know, you, you said right off the top that it was a disastrous performance for uh, it really Attorney was. General Barr. And I, I think that is a, almost an understatement. I mean, it was... A complete mess, he, top to bottom. He looked terrible. He sounded yeah. terrible. His answers were uh, not truthful at best. <laughs> it, it was a mess. It's no wonder yeah. that he's not coming back today. So how about another one? Here's another case where, where that uh, Pat Leahy also pushed him on. Okay, you say he, the president, fully cooperated. He kept saying that. The president fully cooperated with the special counsel. Well, what about the fact that he told Don McGahn to fire or to get to go to Rod, uh, Rod Rosenstein and to get Mueller fired? Is that isn't that obstruction of justice? And Bill Barr said, "No, no, it's not." He said because, and if you read the report, this is the way it was explained. McGahn explained it that what Trump said is, "I don't want you." He didn't say fire Robert Mueller. What he said was. Go to Rosenstein and tell him that Mueller has a conflict of interest and therefore we've got to get, got to get rid of Mueller. And Barr said, that's different than saying fire Mueller. Because he said, try to follow this. I mean, he thinks we're idiots to buy this. He said, well, if you say he's got a conflict of interest and he's got to go, you assume somebody's going to replace him. That, but if you say fire him, that assumes nobody's going to replace him, and therefore they're different. They're not different at all. It's just a different way of achieving the same thing, which is getting Mueller out, obstructing justice. And by the way, even if you fired Mueller, 
you would assume, just like when he fired Comey, somebody else would take over the investigation, which Robert Mueller did. A total distinction without difference that Bill Barr said, again, exonerated uh, the president of the United States. And then, um, again, on fully cooperating, Bill Barr yesterday said that, no, it's true that the president didn't agree to sit down and talk to Mueller, but that Mueller never pushed for it. That he sort of accepted that and he didn't push for it. Let's go back to the report, the Mueller report. Quote, beginning in December 2017, this office sought for more than a year to interview the president. Robert Mueller says that. Bill Barr says, oh, he never even tried to get an interview with the president. Again, he lied, lied, lied. Uh, and another thing that Pat Leahy pointed out is, um, I thought he did an excellent job. You say he uh, didn't do anything to obstruct justice, didn't do anything wrong. Well, what about telling Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen, if you don't cooperate, if you refuse to cooperate with uh, Robert Mueller, I got your back. He, the White House told Manafort's attorneys and Michael Cohen's attorneys, don't worry about it. You refuse to cooperate. I've got your back. We'll get a pardon for you. There's so many ways in which um, <clears throat> um, Bob Bill Barr re- misrepresented and undermined the, the Mueller report. And you know, the, the bottom line for me is I have a new respect for Jeff Sessions after yesterday. I never thought I'd hear myself say that. I never thought I'd hear you say that either. But in this respect... That Jeff Sessions, when he realized he had a conflict and he couldn't appear to be Donald Trump's butt boy, he recused himself. He did the necessary thing. He also did the honorable thing. I, I will tell you one thing. I will bet you, I am certain of this. I bet the whole ranch on this. Bill Barr would never recuse himself. Never. Had he been in Jeff Sessions' shoes, he would have said, no, there's no conflict. I'm the attorney general of the United States. He would never have recused himself. In fact, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut yesterday raised that very possibility with Bill Barr. I can say very surely I did not discuss the substance of it. Will you recuse yourself from those investigations? No. No. There you go. Yeah. There it is, straight from the horse's mouth. So I think, you know, what we've got is I think we just have to accept that we have a, an attorney general who was appointed for one reason only. He was appointed, um, Said this, I've said this before, he was appointed to undermine in any way the Robert Mueller report and to protect Donald Trump. That was the sole reason he was appointed attorney general. Uh, Trump knew he could count on him. I'm sure they had that conversation. Donald Trump knew about his 19-page memo written a year before that he didn't think uh, that he thought the whole Mueller investigation was in effect a witch hunt. Donald Trump knew what he was getting. He put Bill Barr there for that purpose, and Bill Barr has delivered. Mission accomplished. You know, I, I have to say, I saw some conservatives out yesterday on on Twitter and online, and I, I saw a column written about this that Bill Barr is not just there to protect Donald Trump, but he is there pr- to protect presidential power. 
Uh, and that really is what he's standing up for. And okay, that's fine. I'm willing to believe that. But yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. Sure. But in the person of an idiot. Well, what, right? what, what, what I'm saying is, knowing how he feels about that, and knowing how strongly he's put himself out there on presidential power, that is the exact reason why he got the job. Absolutely. They handpicked him because they knew that no matter how stupid Donald Trump was and how illegally he might have acted in the eyes of the now attorney general, he has long held this belief that the president is somehow above the law. Yeah. That's no. why he has the job. Yeah. He wants to reaffirm an imperial presidency, yeah. if you will. Right. Yeah. And even even for even someone as unqualified <laughs> right, uh, as Donald Trump. Interesting um, a voice from the not-too-distant past, James Comey, former FBI director, uh, has an op-ed in the uh, New York Times this morning, which is pretty pretty blistering as well. Um, and the headline is, How Trump Co-Ops Leaders Like Barr. And, of course, Comey himself was in this position, which he does admit. He says here, just reading a little bit of it, James Comey, New York Times, it starts with your sitting silent while he lies, both in public and private, making you complicit in your silence. So he says, Comey says, you're there, and he's just talking, and he says all this stuff, and he, he never stops talking, and if you don't challenge every statement, he sort of assumes or takes for granted that you agree with him, and you, if you don't publicly go out and disagree with him, then suddenly you're sucked into this. He points out, next comes Mr. Trump attacking institutions and values you hold dear. Again, you still don't say anything because you believe in these institutions and you think you've got to stay there and help them out. And Comey points out, and this is in, in the end, you realize you are lost. He has eaten your soul. So I just have to say, if Bill Barr ever did have a soul, <laughs> right? <laughs> he has certainly, Donald Trump has eaten his soul, or you, to put it another way, Bill Barr has sold his soul to the devil when it comes to Donald Trump, no doubt about it. So I think what has to happen now is we've got to hear from Robert Mueller. <clears throat> Robert 100%, Mueller, 100%. 100%. He, he's got it. Now, Lindsey Graham says we're not going to hear anybody else, but the House Judiciary should certainly call Robert Mueller. Let's hear his side of the story. It's the only way to get all the facts out. What did you find? What did you mean? Exactly what did Trump do and what didn't he do? What is the real story? You can't get it from Bill Barr. You'll never get it from Bill Barr. You can't trust Bill Barr. I think we can trust Robert Comey to tell his, I mean Robert Mueller to tell his own story, um, and he has to. And by the way, as far as Bill Barr is, final point, he was scheduled to testify an hour and a half from now at 9 a.m. East Coast in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Yesterday, he said, uh, yesterday afternoon after he left the Senate Committee, he said he was not coming back today. He's not coming back today because he disagrees with what Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler wants to do which, in addition to having the members of the committee ask their questions, is having a staff attorney question the attorney general. Um, and Bill Barr says, no, that's not, um, that's not fair. I'm not going to do that. I think I should get equal time. I'm a member of the executive branch. I should only talk to members of the legislative branch and not to their staffers. 
even though there's a long history. Go back and look at it. As recently as Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, they had staff attorneys question Brett Kavanaugh during the Richard Nixon impeachment hearings. The staff attorneys were the ones who asked all the questions. Here's Jerry Nadler yesterday saying he still hopes that Barr reconsiders this and shows up. The committee will convene at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning as planned. My colleagues will be present. I hope and expect that the Attorney General will think overnight and will be there as well. And uh, Jerry Nadler says basically, who the hell does Bill Barr think he is? What nerve? The Attorney General has a nerve to try to dictate, and the administration has a nerve to dictate our procedures. It's simply part of the administration's uh, complete stonewalling of Congress. And again, again, uh, Jerry Nadler, what's Trump afraid of, a staff attorney, really? I think that is the reason he's not coming. He is terrified terrified of having to face a uh, skilled attorney. So you can add Bill Barr to the long list of people who have gotten close to Donald Trump and walked out of there not that long afterwards. You know, think of Reince Priebus. Think of John Kelly, think of Gary Cohn, you know, the long, long list of people who once had a reputation in this town or in this country who are crushed today and just considered total stooges of Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I just have to mention. Chew them up, spit yeah, them out. On that point, uh, Burgess Everett, a uh, friend of the show, uh, yeah, wrote a great yes. piece of Politico about how moderate Democrats fear that they might have made a big mistake backing Barr. There were three oh, Senate Democrats voting for him. Yeah. that voted to confirm uh, Barr. Doug Jones, uh, Joe Manchin, and Kirsten Cinema. They all voted to confirm Bill Barr. Uh, and now they're sort of having second thoughts. And to that I would say uh, anybody, anybody who would debase themselves to go and work for Donald Trump, right? Like how many times have we seen this play out? This person is, you know, has pretty good standing here in Washington, D.C. And then they go work for Donald Trump and they turn into a complete lackey. This this story has been told multiple times in the Trump administration. If anybody will debase themselves enough to go and work for Donald Trump, they are not qualified to work for Don, for the for Donald Trump. They are not worthy of getting any vote at all. Right. Um, one good fr- I have a good friend. A Republicans been in several administrations who t- refused, offered a job in the Labor Department, refused it because could not, He this was two years ago, just knew that Donald Trump was not somebody that he respected and could ever could ever be proud of working for. There, there are a lot of people in, this, in, in, in Washington like him who early on um, turned down jobs in the Trump administration because they didn't like Trump, didn't, didn't like what he was doing to the party, didn't like what he stood for, didn't want to be anywhere near him. Okay, there are those people. Now, two years later, we really know Donald Trump. We have seen what an incompetent president he is. We've seen what a despiteful, hateful, disgusting person he is. For anybody to take a job with Donald Trump today, I have zero respect for. I don't care how good they are, zero respect. And and they are monumentally just dumb and stupid to take a job with Donald Trump unless again they've got their own agenda yeah. and have no soul and like I think that's proven that with Bill Barr to take that job forget it I, so. I'll even go so far as to say there are a lot of people who got in like at the ground level of the Trump administration and 
being called the public service is the is the highest. Uh, yeah, and uh, remember, remember the pivot. Yeah, right, right. I, I mean, everybody thought they could sort of kind of carve their own lane and continue doing good work in the government without. I mean, at this point, though, no, no. At this that point, ship we, has long sailed. Exactly. At this point, we know no way. All right. So much for Bill Barr and lots more going on, including the fact that the situation in Venezuela uh, is uh, pretty hairy and the administration still insists that all options are on the table, including the military option. Jennifer Williams, foreign editor for Vox, Vox Vox.com, joins us next here on The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Thursday, May 2nd, The Bill Press Show. Live from our nation's capital, with all the news of the day, and brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, Leo Girard. The Steelworkers, one of the sponsors of the great big uh, um, campaign rally that launched Joe Biden's candidacy on Monday in Pittsburgh. Uh, Check out their website at USW.org. Org. And uh, you have been weighing in with your comments on the last half hour and on Bill Barr's testimony. Peter? Yes, indeed. Lots of comments on Twitter. Uh, let's start with the Barr stuff. Uh, KG says, Nadler should hold the hearing and read the Mueller letter in its entirety if Bill Barr won't show up. Uh, that's certainly one way to get around him not being there. Uh, our buddy yeah, Romaine. Uh, you know, I'd like to see the first. They released yesterday the second Mueller letter. I'd like to see that first Mueller letter. Nobody's sure, seen that Sure, yeah, yet. yeah, exactly. And I want to see Mueller testify, but that's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Read the letter today. Uh, our buddy Romaine uh, in Chicago says, I don't understand why anyone is surprised by Bill Barr's performance. I was screaming, why is the Senate still confirming uh, people like this, uh, confirming people that this clown president nominates, hashtag, <laughs> we live in hell. Uh, <laughs> yes, we do indeed. Uh, and Romaine also says about the Jim Comey uh, column, he says, uh, Jim Comey can eat it. He is why we are here in the first place. Uh, I, I will say, like, it is a little annoying that James Comey keeps popping his I head up like agree, a groundhog I agree, all I agree. the time. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to say some of the right things today, but let's, I get it. Uh, but but we cannot consider James Comey a hero. He is the one who, um, more as much as anybody, um, hurt Hillary Clinton and is responsible for Donald Trump being in the White House. Yeah, uh, lots of people are on board the Maisie Hirono bandwagon. Lots oh, of Maisie Hirono fans in our mentions today. Uh, someone says, "Good for uh, Maisie Hirono." The right words. Have power. Yes, indeed. I think she was very powerful uh, yesterday when she was talking uh, to Bill Barr. Also, uh, we're going to be talking Venezuela here shortly. Uh, Michael says, if we go to war with Venezuela, it will be a huge mistake. Donald Trump and the Republicans just want their oil. Have we seen this story before? Yeah, pretty scary. Scary to even think about. Yeah, indeed. You know, I just had a wild thought. Oh, no. You know, if Joe Biden were the nominee, no matter who, well, let's just say if uh, if it's a white male as the nominee. Sure. Everybody said there's not going to be two white males on the ticket. We have to have a woman, hopefully, you know, um, as a, a vice president, if not the presidential candidate, certainly one of the two. Yeah. How about Maisie Hirono? Sure, man. I'd love it. Yeah. You know, nobody's I'd talking about her. They're talking about, well, it'll have to be Kamala Harris or 
or Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand. Fine, they're all great, or Stacey Abrams, fine, but I think put Maisie Hirono in the mix. There was a weird... She would be dynamite. I think she'd be great. There was a weird little bump uh, before everybody started getting in that there was some buzz around her actually running for president. It was a boomlet, I think they call here in Washington, D.C., right? It was a very quick and passing storm. But look, uh, she's been right on the money all throughout the Trump presidency. Uh, like a hundred percent. Yeah, you know she's voted against every one of his nominees. She has uh, absolutely taken them to task uh, when she had the opportunity. And she doesn't to. hold she's back. Great. Not at all. Doesn't hold Not back at all. all. Um, by the way, uh, Joe Biden was on the campaign trail yesterday out in Iowa. Um, he had a quick comment also on what should happen now with Mr. Barr. I think he's lost the confidence of the American people. I think he should. Think he should resign is what Joe Biden was saying. Uh, on the Biden front. Boy, I got to tell you, who knows who's going to be the Democratic nominee, but Donald Trump cannot let it go. So yesterday morning, he went into a tweet storm. We're used to his tweet storms now, but this was an unusual one even for Donald Trump. He went into a tweet storm on Joe Biden. He retweeted over 60 times, six zero times, tweets that were he was retweeting tweets that were critical of the firefighters endorsing Joe Biden. Um, of course, Let me just say, first they of all, did. I don't know how you do it. You have the notifications up for any time <laughs> that Trump tweets. Yes. 60 times in like an hour, I think. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. rapid fire. I can't even imagine. Like, your phone must have had smoke coming off of oh, it. No, all no. I, every time it kept you know, buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. <laughs> right. Right. I kept looking for it. And, and these were some disgruntled members of the firefighters who didn't like the fact that their union had endorsed. And let's face it, you know, not every union member's a Democrat. Um, but Donald Trump was just relishing those. And then there are other commentators, conservative commentators, who were ba- basically bashing bashing the unions. Donald Trump put, you know, proudly retweeted them all. And then he came out with his own and he said, quote, his own tweet, I've done more for firefighters than this dues-sucking union will ever do, and I get paid zero. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What has Donald he done Trump for firefighters? What has he done for unions, period? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Uh, but also, any, again, anybody, any president of the United States who has time in the morning to retweet 60 times, you know, hey, folks, uh, we're not getting our money's worth. Well, maybe maybe we'd rather have him doing that than uh, <clears throat> something where he could really get in trouble at, at any rate. But good for the uh, good for the firefighters, good for the steel workers, good for all the unions, no matter whom they endorse, they are going to be a powerful political force. They were in 2018. Again, reasserting their strength, they're going to be a powerful political, political force in 2020 as well. Away from the uh, domestic front and away from Bill Barr for just a second here, because we want to talk about the situation in Venezuela, which is getting hotter and hotter and really stepped up this week when Juan Guaido uh, basically called for a coup, called for a revolution, and he did so with the full support of the Trump administration. Uh, now, a couple of days later, nothing has changed. Jennifer Williams as foreign editor covering foreign policy for Vox, Vox.com, joining us in studio. Hi, Jennifer. Nice to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Um, 
Maduro's holding on. How? Yes. Uh, basically through the military. So he still retains control of the military. That's always been basically the name of the game, is whoever controls the military is who's going to stay in charge. So Juan Guaido launches this military uprising, uh, except that the military didn't really show up for said uprising. <laughs> Ended up being yeah. the problem. So, you know, he, he releases this video uh, yesterday morning at dawn. He's standing on this air base. He's flanked by some armed, uh, you know, men. Yeah, yeah but, he had some men in uniform yeah, alongside of him. It looks like mostly the National Guard are the ones, uh, which is, you know, a separate but obviously part of, you know, as well, the military, but, but a different kind of entity. So he seems to have some support there. Uh, I think that seems to be who we think were probably the ones that are supporting him. Um, there have been some some other defections in the military proper as well, um, kind of lower to mid-level officers, but no real high-level, you know, senior officials have really defected. And so, you know, basically these protests that have been going on for weeks have been aimed in large part at convincing the military to come over to the side of, you know, the revolution, to the side of, of the opposition. Uh, you've seen, you know, protests in the street with, with people going up to the military forces and you know, directly addressing them and saying, look, you don't you don't want to be, you know, keeping us down. You don't want to be part of this. Come come on, like come to our yeah, side. And, yeah. you know, so far we just haven't seen that that defection. And I think a lot of that has to do, you know, there are a lot of institutional reasons. But one of the big ones is, you know, Maduro still also controls PDVSA, PDVSA, the, the national state run oil, you know, massive behemoth oil company. Um, and he can use that as you know, essentially his piggy bank in a lot of ways um, to, you know, gift largesse to supporters. And so obviously if you're in Venezuela, right, the economy is horrible, uh, you know, medicine shortages, food shortages, we're talking basic supplies just gone, you know, thousands of people fleeing to try to find, you know, just to survive. So, you know, if you're, you know, the average Venezuelan soldier and you have access to potentially largesse from the government who can Say, hey, you stick with me. I'll make sure your family gets, you know, food and medicine you need. You know, I can also understand why that would be probably an attractive proposition. Whereas you might, you know, in your head or your heart support the, you know, the uprising, maybe in theory. But at the end of the day, right, like it's your family. So I, I think that is at least one of the calculations. It's not the only calculation. Okay. So this whole thing started, what, about a month ago or so when yeah. Guaido said, you know, I'm right. I, I, I'm going to put myself up, right, mm -hmm. uh, as the new president of Argentina. And the Trump administration said, we recognize you. Other governments came along and said, we recognize the opposition. Right. So there was that, that happened, what, six weeks, a month yeah, ago, a I forget? Yeah, a few weeks back, yeah, about, okay. about a month or so now, I believe. All right, so then there was, there was some protests then, and then everything died down. Right. You know, and Guaido was still out. Right. Yeah. I mean, out of uh, and Maduro is still in power. Right. More like so then, suddenly they get this idea. Now that they're going to we're going to have this military coup, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Monday. So, I guess my question is, how long is this going to last? Right? Or is it already over? I think that's a question I think even Guaido's supporters involved in the uprising are asking themselves right now. I think the Trump administration is asking. Um, you know, I. Obviously, I'm not inside the administration, thank God. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like right now what we're seeing, and again, this is just from reporting and looking in on the outside, obviously, um, 
but it looks like something maybe didn't go right. I don't know if it was an intelligence failure on the part of the Trump administration thinking that Guaido had more support yeah, than, yeah. than he did. Um, but it was a huge gamble, right, to, to launch this military uprising. And now he's just kind of standing there going, well, now what, you know? Yeah. So well, I, I think it remains to be seen. You know, do people keep fighting or do they go, well, I guess this is it. Donald Trump commented about, commented about it yesterday, and we are struck by seeing this video, particularly video of the military with their jeep running over protesters and yeah, you know, firing horrific. at them. But so here's uh, here's the president yesterday. I've been watching him on the streets and uh, right on the streets where people are being killed, and he's out there doing rallies. He's actually very brave in a in a true sense. Well, he is brave, right? I guess, but. <laughs> um, but close but no cigar, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean... He's still not in power, and we're backing someone whose chances maybe of taking over look like they're getting slimmer and slimmer. Uh, uh, Let me back up. I think it's true that all of us would rather see different leadership in Venezuela, right? right? But how do we pull that? How do we achieve that? Yeah. And now, John Bolton said a couple of days ago, all options are on the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, really? Are we really thinking of military intervention? Well, two uh, U.S. aircraft carriers are currently steaming. The, I don't think they use steam anymore, but you know they're yeah. they're making their way very quickly toward Venezuela yeah. as we speak. Um, they're you know they are putting the uh, infrastructure in place. Should that be the case, obviously aircraft carriers can be used for all kinds of things. You know, medical and aid support and that sort of thing. So it doesn't mean there's some sort of military invasion imminent. I don't want to suggest that, but. You know, I think there's a big question as a country right now that that we as Americans have to think about, too. And you're seeing a lot of this conversation happening more on the left. Um, The right doesn't seem to be really questioning whether or not, you know, a potential military invasion and regime change in a country in Latin America is or is not a good idea. Um, I think as a country, we have, uh, I think the historical record is pretty clear, not done so well when we've launched similar attempts in the past. But at the same time, you know, this is not the same situation as before. This is this is now. And, you know, this does have the backing of, you know, tons of countries in Western Europe and in the region. Um, but I think, you know, there is a serious question about how far does the United States itself want to get involved? Do, you know, do Americans as a country want to really, you know, launch a potential military invasion of yet another country and regime change? You know, there's the old Colin Powell, you break it, you buy it, lesson of Iraq. And, I think a lot of people are very hesitant to get that far. I don't know if the administration, though, is necessarily having those qualms. I mean, the United States has a very troubled, if not shameful, history in Latin America. Absolutely. uh, In terms of overthrowing duly elected leaders of countries because we don't like them. Think Salvador Allende in Chile and and, and others, right? And the fact that we still have this stupid boycott of, of Cuba. So this will be going back to that. What is it? The is it the Madison? What's the the, the, the doctrine? The Monroe doctrine. Monroe, right, Monroe right. doctrine. That right. This is our but area of the world. We're in charge. Exactly. We, we get to do what we want. And anybody right. we don't like, we can we can topple and put somebody else in there. Right. right? You know. And, and and again in Chile, and that's how we got. Yeah. Uh, uh, forget his name now. The Pinochet. Right. Right. right Pinochet. Yeah. And I think there's a there's a lot of. Concerned. So, I mean, Maduro is bad. He is a duly elected leader of Venezuela, right? Well, that's his argument uh, and his supporters. The international community, including the United States, but also independent observers in the UN and and obviously the the opposition, 
uh, say, and it's pretty clear. I mean, I you know I wasn't personally counting the votes <laughs> to be fair. Oh, yeah, that... but the, the most recent election that Maduro won was very heavily rigged in his favor. So that's the argument that he's not actually the legitimate. Okay, leader. but on that point, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so was Vladimir Putin's election. <laughs> right, rate. right. And we well, don't got, seem to be... He got 98% of the Absolutely. vote or something? Yeah. I mean, so if you think about tyrants, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Vladimir Putin, you've got Kim Jong-un. Absolutely. You know, um, Erdogan in Turkey, right? Yeah. I mean... Sisi in Egypt. It's just on and on. Sisi in Egypt. All of whom are bud buddies with yeah. Donald Trump. And yet this one tyrant, Maduro... Right. He doesn't like, and so we're going to go after him. Right. and It just doesn't hold up to me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think U.S. history and history of U.S. foreign policy shows that we, you know, the enemy of <laughs> my enemy is my friend. And, you know, we like it's my dictator, at least. So in that case, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's our bad guy. Right. That old kind of saying. And, and I think, you know, we continue to see that. Right. And I think what's happening here is that Maduro has always been anti-U.S., for understandable reasons, obviously, but as was Chavez before him, right? Exactly, um, and I think you know there is a broader geopolitical issue. You mentioned Cuba, right? The the close relationship between Venezuela and Cuba, um, and oil. At the end, I of the was day. just going to say how <laughs> how important is the oil factor? How dependent are we on Venezuela and oil? So we, uh, as America, it, it's kind of complicated. So. You know, we have our own domestic oil production, oil and natural gas. Um, it's more the the impact of Venezuelan oil not being on the market in terms of the world market, right, that affects mm-hmm. price fluctuations. So it's less directly about, like, American gas prices um, in this case and more about just kind of the global flow of oil. But I think there's no question that the U.S. administration and, and many others would like to have a friendly government in Venezuela who would not, you know, be railing against us and saying that the CIA is trying to overthrow them, even if we may now actually be trying to do that. Um, It's a huge piece of this. I mean, it's a massive oil company, but they've been struggling, right? And the fact that, you know, the the collapse in oil prices, you know, a few years back um, has caused, in large part, a lot of what Venezuela's economy is, is going through right now. So, you know, if your entire economy is based on the oil market and the oil market fluctuates, then what happens all of a sudden, the bottom drops out and you're left with this kind of very heavy, you know, social kind of welfare net that you have for for the people, which is part of Chavismo, right? But if you can't pay those bills anymore, then you have a problem. So I think, you know, obviously the US and, and global interest in the oil market is a huge piece of this. But it's also the case that I think even regular everyday Venezuelans would like somebody in charge who could maybe figure out how to fix the economy. Right. Now, right. whether Guaido is that guy, that remains to be seen. And is and so one other factor I saw that now Donald Trump is saying we're going to um, ratchet up the sanctions against Cuba right. because Cuba is supporting Maduro. Right. right. So this is a, a way of rolling back a lot of the rapprochement that we saw under President Obama with Cuba right. yeah, using and- Venezuela as a... As an excuse. Absolutely. We, you know, the, the administration has been saying they were going to do that since, you know, before they were the administration, right? Since the yeah. campaign trail. Um, I, you know, the reason I laugh, I'm not laughing at the idea of sanctions on country. I understand this is a very serious thing that affects actual human lives. The reason I, I laugh is that 
the U.S. has been trying the same approach toward Cuba. It hasn't really seemed to work yet. Since 1960, right. I believe right. it is. And it yeah. hasn't no, seemed no, to it's a joke. flip them in the way that we no, you know, no. right. think. It, I mean, same thing in Iran. Same thing, you know, ad nauseum. Sanctions, you know, obviously do cause very serious problems for countries and governments have to make decisions. And, you know, the theory behind it is that, well, the people will get mad at the government and say, hey, you know, you need to stop paying for X, Y, Z military or whatever policy, except that never works. It's usually they just get mad at America. Right. Well, um, give it another week and I think we'll know which way it's going to go. Right? <sighs> we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last thing we need, I just can't believe that they would consider sending any kind of advi military advisors or troops or whatever into Venezuela. Let's hope they don't decide to go there. Uh, Jennifer Williams, nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. You can follow Thanks, Jennifer's man. work at Vox, Vox.com. Matt Ford joins us next from the New Republic. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And in just an hour, the House Judiciary Committee will convene to hear from Attorney General Bill Barr. And they may be waiting a long time. <laughs> they may take a lunch break while they're still waiting for Bill Barr to show up. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Tuesday Thursday, make it Thursday. Whoa, Thursday, May 2nd. It is the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us. Thanks for joining us, wherever you're joining us online, on the radio, or on television. It's good to see you as we bring you up to date on the latest news of the day. Most of it here in Washington, D.C., centered around a mammoth hearing yesterday in the Senate Judiciary Committee, where Bill Barr insisted that he did not misrepresent Robert Mueller, but that's not what, what, what Robert Mueller said in two different letters to the attorney general. And the senator is trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, Democrats, at least, were the Republicans on the committee were just spending all their time saying, we've got to go back and investigate those Hillary Clinton emails because we didn't do enough on those Hillary Clinton emails. Uh, what a circus it was. We'll tell you all about it with the help of Matt Ford, our good friend from New Republic. Hello, Matt. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again. They've been keeping you busy lately. They lots, have. <laughs> lots of ammunition, right? Yeah, it never seems to end. Uh, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at every aspect of this hearing. And we want to hear from you what you thought about it and um, what you think about Bill Barr as attorney general. He insists that he did not do anything to exonerate Donald Trump. A lot of people are saying otherwise. So your comments on Twitter, welcome, at BP Show, at BP Show. Matt and I and you talk about the bar hearing, but first. 
This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories yes. making news. Okay, uh, the last hour, Bill, we were talking about how you have your notification set up for whenever Donald Trump yes. tweets. Yes. Did you happen to catch the one yesterday, uh, last night? I'm not where, saying I read them all. Okay, fair. But did you happen to see the one last night where he said, now everyone is proud to be saying Merry Christmas again. Oh, no. He's back on the war on Christmas. And it's May. I'm still so yeah, right. It's no. the yesterday was the first day of May, and he decided to take that opportunity to uh, to once again start the war on Christmas. He says there was a time when we went shopping and you wouldn't see Merry Christmas on the stores. Oh, God. You'd see a red wall, and it wouldn't say that. It would say Happy Holidays or something, but it wouldn't say Merry Christmas. We're back to saying Merry Christmas again in this country, and that's something I consider a great achievement because it really spells out what is happening. That is, he said that he said the full thing at a, at a uh, the interfaith dinner last night. Oh, but he also oh. tweeted about it uh, as well. You know, I can't believe he doesn't drink. <laughs> Does he? <laughs> that is, I, I've hung out with a lot of drunks in my yeah, life. Yeah, that's 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 uh, his behavior. Just yeah, reminds me that. of somebody who's just drunken. Yeah, bubbling away, bub- yeah, mumbling away. I think that's probably right. Uh, Seattle, earlier this week, they passed a new law. There is a new law mm-hmm. that will require bars, restaurants, gyms, stadiums, and other places of what they call public accommodation, in other words, where people hang out in public, they have to start putting closed captioning on all the TVs they have up there, right? You've been to bars and they have TVs on. And you might not necessarily know what's going on unless they have the closed captioning on. Well, now it is a law. It is a law in Seattle. If you have a TV on in a public place where people gather, you have to have the closed captioning on. Why? Uh, Well, they say that there are a lot of people who uh, want to see what's happening on the TV when you go to the bar. Uh, They don't want them to, like, crank the volume all the way up in a bar. Uh, so this way you'll be able to tell what's what's going on. Interesting. Yeah. Right? So we have three monitors in the studio here. We do. With the sound down. Yep. And I think it's the best way to watch television. At 100%. And you can tell a lot. You can tell what they're talking about by the people they have on. And we don't have the closed captions Chirons. on either. We don't, no, we don't have closed captioning on. those? I, I know everything is going on on the morning shows without hearing a sound. <laughs> and it's the best way to watch the morning shows. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. So you want to get your daughter into Stanford? I got a deal for you. Six and a half million dollars. She can go to Stanford. Of course, you still have to pay tuition on top of that. Oh, man. The scandal over the college admissions just keeps getting worse and worse. Yes, that is a Japanese couple who did pay Rick Singer six and a half million dollars to get their daughter into Stanford. Boy, hope she worked hard and got some good marks. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Thursday, May 2nd. It is the Bill Press Show, and uh, we are so glad to see you today. Uh, So glad to join you online, on the radio, and on television, coast to coast, with the news of the day, and uh, happy to welcome back to the program. Uh, We see him often these days because there's so much happening on the legal front. Um, Legal affairs reporter for the New Republic, Matt Ford. Hello, Matt. Thanks. uh, Good to be back. So... 
Bill Barr, he came in yesterday to uh, tell and sort of convince the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee that he put out an accurate summary of the Mueller report, uh, that he did a good job presenting the report with very few redactions, that we now know what the story is, that everything Robert Mueller um, wanted us to know, and basically, end of story, Let's it's over, let's move on. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense the Democrats were very persuaded by that. Uh, especially, you know, Kamala Harris, Mazzie Hirono, they were especially vocal in their criticism of him. But, I mean, this is this is the fundamental problem that, that Barr faces, is that uh, he has no credibility left with the Democrats now. And so whatever actions he takes as attorney general are going to be viewed under a cloud of suspicion by them. Well, um, he's also, um, he also didn't, so he didn't please the Democrats on the committee, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um but he didn't please Robert Mueller either, which is pretty clear now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and Mueller's not a guy who is, is known for speaking out. Um, so for him to send a letter to Barr indicating that he's displeased, that's that's something that's significant. Um, you know, Barr, Barr tried to dissemble about this a bit. Well, uh, yeah, what did he say about the letter, uh, Peter? He had a little uh, favorite adjective here about this Mueller letter. The letter's a bit snitty, and I oh. think it was probably written by one of his staff people. Yeah, How do you say that? Snitty. Why would he say that? I think it was pretty clear that he was not happy that Bob Barr was raining on his parade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the funny thing is is that he and Mueller are supposed to be friends. That was something that he yeah, continually yeah. brought up during his confirmation hearing. You know, he, also, a, he also said at one time that he thought it was strange that since Mueller did not reach a conclusion on obstruction, that he spent so much time investigating obstruction <laughs> of justice which I find strange because that was his job. Right. There, there's some, some causal mechanism problems there. Uh, and, you know, this, this sort of characterized the, the whole testimony. Uh, one of the things that was really striking is that this is, this is the performance from an attorney general that Trump has wanted all along. This is what he fired Jeff Sessions for not doing. This is what he wanted Matt Whitaker to do. Um, he's wanted somebody who would be in his corner and defend him and act basically like his defense lawyer for these Democratic hearings and committees and whatnot, uh, and he finally got it. You know, this is, this is a man who, who is portraying himself, first and foremost, as the president's defender rather than as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Right. My bottom line from this whole thing is, yesterday, is that it, it, only Bill Barr could make Jeff Sessions look good. Right. I mean, Jeff Sessions, you know, he's, he's going to end up probably doing a lot of the same things Jeff Sessions would, but he's going to, you know, undermine the Department of Justice's independence along the way. I mean, the one thing that, that Jeff Sessions did that got him in trouble was to recuse himself. Mm-hmm. Do you believe there's any way that Bill Barr, in, had he been there, would have recused himself? No, I don't. And partly because the, the way the recusal happened, but also partly because, you know, he's explicitly refused to even consider this yeah. during his confirmation hearing. That was his sort of red line, is that he's not going to cede any authority to anybody else about when he's going to step back from a case, and that's because he doesn't want to. That's because he wants to be in these cases to make sure that his view of presidential power is upheld. So I want to ask you about a couple of specifics in the hearing, um, and then where we go from here. Um, We know that the letter, so the timetable, Mm -hmm. get back here to the time. March 22nd is when the report was handed to um, the Attorney General. Right. March 24 is when he sent out his two-page letter, Mm -hmm. four-page letter, sorry, which he called the summary. Yeah. March 25 is when the first letter from Bob Mueller goes to Bill Barr saying, Right away. Right away. 
and Barr doesn't do anything about it. March 27, two days later, there's the, the big letter from mm-hmm. Mueller to Barr where he says that your summary did not fully capture the context, the nature, and the substance of our work, right? Pretty, pretty brutal. Yeah. March 28, Bill Barr calls Robert Mueller and has a conversation with him saying, what's your beef here, right? Okay, flash forward. Two weeks later, April 9, Bill Barr's in front of the House Judiciary Committee and Congressman Charlie Crist says, do you know if Mueller agreed with your assessment of the whole thing, Mueller and his team? And Bill Barr says, I don't know. And, you know, this is... This That's is, a lie. It, I mean, it's... He did know, right? He had two letters and a phone call. I mean, this is, this is where it's going to be really important to get Mueller to testify because we need to know exactly Bingo. what Mueller told him to establish that. Uh, it's possible that, you know, Mueller might have said something vaguer than that and might have been more cautious and hesitant. We know Mueller's a pretty cautious guy. Um, but look, you know, Barr was clearly aware that Mueller was not pleased with how this whole thing went down. And he tried to dissemble and, and suggest that, well, maybe Mueller was displeased with how the public reacted to the letter rather than the letter itself. But that's, you know, it's a distinction without a difference. And it's the sort of like lawyerly dissembling yeah. that, that is going to really help Trump as this goes forward. Right. Um, there are so many moments. Uh, Kamala Harris had a moment, too, where mm-hmm. she said, did the White House ever suggest that you investigate anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. He could not answer that. He got, he got into this conversation about what what's the meaning of the word suggest. Yep. And the first thing that came to mind is if you if you read the obstruction section on its own, one of the continual <laughs> themes in it is that Trump doesn't actually ask people to do things. He suggests. He sort of hints. He has the sort of you know uh, King Henry talking about Archbishop Beckett. Somebody rid me of this meddlesome priest approach to leadership. And so, you know, I, 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 it's not surprising that, that Barr said, well, he, you know, he didn't ask me to do anything. But it's probable that he suggested things. Right. And, and, you know, the funny thing about that is Barr's only been there for like two months. Yeah. And already yeah. he can't answer that question. Right. Uh, so that, that in turn raises a lot more questions. Well, one specific example of that, that Barr uh, repeated again yesterday that the president totally cooperated with the special counsel. Mm-hmm. Except for trying to fire him twice. Well, that's what I want to get to. Uh, so Pat Leahy asked Bill Barr, okay, um, what about, if you say fully cooperated, what about when he asked Don McGahn to fire him? Well, he didn't ask him to fire him. What he said was, and the report does confirm this, mm-hmm. he said, go tell Rod Rosenstein that Robert Mueller has a conflict. Paren, he used to join, he used to belong to my golf club. Mm-hmm. That was so Robert Mueller has a conflict, and therefore we got to get rid of him. Now, what's the difference between that and saying outright just fire him? I mean, it's it's again goes to Trump's leadership style. If if Obama had said something like that, or even George W. Bush, uh, you know, a reasonable observer might be able to think that maybe they were just you know trying to pass something along, not necessarily an instruction to command. Trump has made clear that this is how he operates. We know that from his interactions with James Comey, where he said to let this thing go with regards to the Flynn investigation. Um, So that context is key, and that's something that Mueller went to really great lengths to show in his obstruction report. Uh, And it's something that I think really is going to be a huge signifying factor going forward in how Trump processes this investigation. So Barr said the difference is, which I don't buy at all, that if you say he's got a conflict, he's got to go... That assumes somebody else is going to take his place. 
So therefore, that's not obstruction. If you say, "I'm gonna," he's got to be fired. That assumes that nobody else is going to take his place, and therefore that is obstruct. I mean, I, I think either way, you sort of assume like Comey's fired, Robert Mueller steps in, right? Right. He's he's not the the view the viewpoint he's taking is not how it actually reflects on law and whether or not it reflects sort of an attempt to circumvent or violate it. What he's reflecting is how do I defend this as the president's defense attorney? How do I go right. before a jury yeah. or go before the Senate and say what you saw, think you saw isn't what you did? It's actually this. See, I think that's the key, you know, that he sees the role of the attorney general as the White House counsel for the president of the United States. Right. I mean, even more so than that, because the White House counsel is just supposed to represent the president. He is, he is going to defend Trump and say he totally cooperated. There, there's no universe in which Trump totally cooperated. I mean, just even if you take the entire obstruction section out, Trump refused multiple times to meet with Mueller face to face to answer questions one on one. And so he answered a smaller subset of these written questions. And when he did, it was all, I can't remember. I don't know. You know, it, it's, it was so long ago, three years ago. Uh, and it's just not, not credible. And Bill Barr yesterday said um, that, among other things, that the president did, or that the special counsel did not push. He said Mueller didn't push for an interview. <laughs> uh, I read this earlier. Read it again from, from the report, mm-hmm. quote, Robert Mueller, in the report, quote, beginning in December 2017, this office sought for more than a year to interview the president. Yeah, they were pushing. They, they, they wanted it. They didn't get it. Right. it it's, it's, it's striking. It, it's really striking that he doesn't really feel the need to pretend like he's doing the right thing here, like he's actually upholding the department's independence. He's not trying to hide what he's doing. Right. Um, behind some sort of other smokescreen. Barr is very simply going out there and just defending the president. Matt Ford is with us from the New Republic, thenewrepublic.com. So uh, Senator Maisie Hirono yesterday, uh, who is not running for president, um, went after Bill Barr. She sort of um, took the gloves off, and she was talking about the fact that, well, first of all, she just flat out said, you know, on that point that I mentioned earlier when he said he didn't know whether Mueller agreed with him or not, you lied to Congress. Boom, flat out. You lied to Congress. And then he said, you know, she said, okay, you're coming up here. He might as well have sent any of those other flunkies from the White House up here. Here she is. Now the American people know that you are no different from Rudy Giuliani or Kellyanne Conway or any of the other people who sacrificed their once decent reputation for the grifter and liar who sits in the Oval Office. Well, um, she doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> Um, but she's right. I mean, in a way, he's you know, Rudy Giuliani wishes he was as good at this as he was. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was pretty good at at sort of you know obfuscating things over the last two years, or well, over the last year rather. He he joined uh, yeah, last yeah. May, um, but he wasn't able to quite do it as well as Barr did. Um, what Barr was able to do was make these tiny hair splitting distinctions uh, in the law and in how Trump actually operates. And each on their own might seem all right. Well, you know, people can reasonable people can disagree about that. But the aggregate effect of all this hair splitting is to portray a completely different president than the one we all see on TV every day. Right. Um, the Pat Leahy accused the uh, attorney general yesterday of purposely misleading uh, the Congress. It was Sheldon Whitehouse from um, Rhode Island who accused him of masterful hair splitting. Yeah. <laughs> 
And Maisie Arono of, uh, of, of lying to Congress. So are we going to hear from Robert Mueller? Uh, I mean, the, the word on the street is that he wants to testify. He's willing to testify, at least. Uh, Barr has said, he said yesterday, you know, at one point, I think Klobuchar was asking him about uh, Trump's, Trump's financial returns right. and whether, whether Mueller uh, viewed them. And Barr basically said, you can ask, you know, uh, Bob when he's up on the Hill. Uh, so I, I think that the the real challenge here is whether or not that's going to be uh, a serious claim on on Barr's part. Whether he actually means, uh, yeah, sure, Mueller can testify, or uh, whether they just sort of slow walk it. I thought it was interesting that he did say there would be questions about Don McGahn's testimony, mm-hmm. meaning executive privilege, even though they haven't invoked it yet. But the, he said McGahn's conversations with the president were. Oval Office conversations, therefore, they they could in, uh, invoke executive privilege there. But when he was asked about Mueller, he said, "I've already said I have no problem with Mueller testifying." Right, and the Don McGahn part is interesting because uh, a lot of the legal experts that that have been out there have said that uh, you know since McGahn already testified on this and since it's already effectively in the public record, and I believe Trump even tweeted about right. it the other day. Right. Um, he shouldn't be able to invoke executive privilege on a lot of that. Uh, so that I, I, it's not really clear to me how that is actually going to play out. Maybe we're going to see like we see with the rest of the congressional inves- investigations right now where they raise even spurious claims and then just simply try to grind it out in the courts. All right. So in 45 minutes, the House Judiciary Committee is going to be convening. Um, the scheduled witness is Bill Barr. Mm-hmm. He says, said last night, uh, late this afternoon, I mean, he's not going to show up. Why? He has a conflict? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he doesn't want to talk to staff attorneys. Um, you know, that the, the House wanted to have, you know, counsel from both sides, the majority and the minority, question him when he appeared today. And he said no. Uh, and that's it. So he wasn't going to abide by, you know, the request or the subpoena or anything. Is this an ego thing? He doesn't think the attorney general should have to answer questions from a staffer? It might be that. But, uh, you know, anybody who's been on the Hill knows that that's actually not that uncommon. I mean, maybe that not in this sort of high stakes right. thing. But, you know, we everybody here, all your listeners know that during the Kavanaugh hearing, the Republicans brought out a staff attorney. Uh, they hired one specifically for it to question uh, Christine, Christine Blasey Ford. Ford. Yes. And, of course, she only briefly questioned Brett Kavanaugh shortly after, but there's certainly not anything unusual about this. And if you read through, uh, you know, when, when the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee releases their, their uh, you know, depositions from various Trump campaign officials and Trump White House officials about the Russian investigation, you'll notice that only about half of them do lawmakers actually question them themselves. Often they have the staff attorneys who are much more skilled at it, much more effective at it, much more comprehensive at it, question them themselves. The Nixon-Watergate hearings, or the right. Nixon impeachment hearings, they never got to impeach, but Watergate hearings, they had the staff attorneys. Yeah, I believe that's how Butterfield revealed the White House tapes was under questioning by a staff attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's certainly nothing unusual about it. And if Barr wants to make this about sort of a, you know status of the attorney general thing, he's, he's certainly if entitled he does, to do if that. If he doesn't show, what can the House do about it? Well, there's there's the problem. Uh, the normal mechanism they could do is that they could just simply a- f- bring about a contempt motion and try to compel him to uh, appear. The downside of that is that the people who would compel the attorney general to appear are all working within the Department of Justice. So there's a slight problem there in terms of separation of powers. Um, it's conceivable they could go to court and try and find a, a court to back them up, and they very well may. But you know, this is this is part of Trump's strategy, and this is part of the Trump administration's strategy. 
because they know that the clock runs out in 2020, and they're simply trying to drag things out as long as they can until then. Right. So it would take a Justice Department attorney to um, file a charge against the head of the Justice Department. I mean, if you or I were, were, were defying a, a congressional subpoena, We'd that's... Be in jail. Yeah, they would be calling the U.S. Marshals and having them come round us up. Yeah. Um, it's a little harder to do that when the, their boss is, is the one being, uh, being sought after. Oh, I, yeah, too bad. Wouldn't it be fun to see Bill Barr frog marched out of the Justice Department <laughs> up to the Hill today, but uh, not going to happen. Uh, and I did see a date, something about, oh, I know. Mueller's been invited to testify on the 15th of May mm-hmm. by the um, House Judiciary Committee. Right. So um, and we'll, we'll know pretty soon. I don't think he's officially accepted yet, but we'll know pretty soon. Right. I, I, it's, it's unclear to me whether he's still actually working for the Justice Department in the sense that he needs sort of their clearance. Um, and I assume he would consult with them either way. So that'll probably be a next couple of days process. Right. Um, you've been writing about there some other things I wanted to ask you about. Um, growing opposition to the death penalty for, mm-hmm. and and a sort of less use of the death penalty by m- many states. We don't hear about it as much as we did. What's the story there? No. Well, uh, earlier this week, Georgia uh, handed down its first death sentence in five years. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's really a signifier of how far this country has moved away from the death penalty. Right. Georgia used to right. be uh, a pretty routine state where that's applied. And what we're seeing is that fewer states and fewer counties and fewer juries are willing to hand these sentences down. Um, I believe last year it was something like in the 30s to 40s in the number of death sentences handed down nationwide. Uh, How where, many executions carried out? Uh, probably about uh, 20 to 30. Yeah. Really? More? And executions are, are, are the statistic that people often go to, um, but they're actually not as really telling about the current state of death penalty in some ways because set, you know juries are the ones who actually carry it out in the sense that they actually decide whether somebody will be sentenced to life or death. Uh, and so they're a much more accurate perception of how uh, the public views the death penalty at a given time. And even the last five years, we've gone from 80, 70, 90 death sentences a year down to 30 and 40. Um, so we've seen a rapid and precipitous decline, especially when you go back to the 1990s. In 1996, there were about 315 death sentences in mm. a single year. Um, so this, this is a trend that has resulted in a death penalty that's much more geographically disparate. Only a few ca- counties are handing these down now. And it's turning into something that's very rare and unusual in this country, um, beyond even what we think about with the death penalty normally, uh, almost this sort of oddity in our legal system. And um, there have been so many studies over the years about how much the death penalty costs because people appeal and appeal and you keep them in prison. And, um, and then the racial disparity in terms of death penalty and also just the quality of lawyers that you have and how much money you've got and how, much, you know, how good an attorney you can hire. Right, and there's, there's polling that shows that you know, even Americans who support the death penalty have concerns about this. Um, you know, there were polls in 2015 that showed that, by Pew that showed that you know, something like 54, 56% of Americans support the death penalty, but when you count the number of people who have concerns about, like you say, racial disparities, have concerns about potentially executing somebody innocent, those numbers jump into the 60s and 70s. So there are people out there who, when asked by a pollster on the phone, will say, yeah, sure, I support the death penalty. Um, but they're also aware of its flaws. And so when they get into the jury room, they may be less willing to actually hand it down in practice. Right. 
Uh, and one other issue I know you've been you've been working on, um, as we come into a presidential election, um, it seems that maybe it's more clear than ever that one of the major de- decision points in in voting for president is who, who what vacancies might appear on the Supreme Court and who gets to appoint them. That's right. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said publicly she wants to stay on the court until she's 90. Um, so that's another five years or so, which would be well into the ne- next president's term. God bless her. God wish her long life. She wants. She said she wants to stay on there as long as her uh, old colleague John Paul Stevens did, who I believe turned 99 the other day. Um, but he, he left the court how many years ago? He left the court in 2010. He was, I think, the first justice. that No, he was the second justice that uh, Obama replaced um, after David Souter. Yeah. Um, but no, he's, he's still out there uh, staying active. Um, so she wants to stay on the court that long. And so we know that at, le- you know, at least one vacancy might crop up. Uh, and one of the really stories of the 2016 election was how Republicans saw the Scalia vacancy. And that was a very useful tool for Trump to rally the conservative movement around him because they saw the stakes involved, the first you know, 5-4 liberal court in 50 years. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see if the Democrats, faced with sort of the same, not quite as obvious because you know, the, the Kavanaugh has kind of sealed off the route to a 5-4 liberal majority for now, um, but whether or not they're going to put the same effort and the same unity into a Democratic president um, for over that vacancy that the Republicans So did. this could be the uh, RBG election? Sort of I, I think that's fair to say, yeah. I mean, in terms of how a lot of, you know, there were a lot of never-Trump Republicans who rationalized their support of the president nonetheless uh, because they knew that the court was the key to everything. Uh, and there's a wide ideological gap now in the, in the Democratic Party between people like Joe Biden, between people like Bernie Sanders, uh, the Elizabeth Warrens, the the Betos of the crowd. Um, will those people all come together in the end, uh, and will this be a factor in uniting them? I think that a lot of uh, people on the left have a lot of uh, respect right. and affection for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, whether that'll translate into political, you know, support for whoever will appoint her successor. Well, I I think after Brett Kavanaugh and after um, um, uh, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, Merrick yeah. Garland, the Democrats have have the message right. I, I think, think that they're yeah. finally waking up and realizing and Neil, how so Neil important Gorsuch the court is. Brett Kavanaugh, but particularly the Merrick Garland thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, they have so, it within their grasp. So. Um, there are two ideas that have come up maybe to deal with this also, uh, which is one is to expand the court. Mm-hmm. Would that take a constitutional amendment? It would not. Um, it would take a constitutional amendment to do a lot of things to reform this country. But funnily enough, the Constitution doesn't specify how many justices sit on the court. That's fixed by Congress. So you could have 11. You could have seven. You could have... 13, whatever. Well, yeah. Right. Um, theoretically, you can. We know that in the 30s, uh, President Roosevelt tried to do that. Right. right. Um, but he failed because a lot of people viewed it as an attack on the judiciary. They viewed it as a, a move that would undermine its independence. So and it would take an act of Congress. It would take an act of Congress, yeah. Okay, right. So um, a week or so, last week, actually, um, I had a chance to interview Justice Breyer. Mm. And I asked him about this and, and expanding the court, uh, but she said he, he didn't really support. He didn't see any need for it. He thinks nine is fine. You know, mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, I think it's seven on the Supreme Court, but said we work together well as nine. I think we should just leave it at that. But then I asked him about the other idea, which is term limits yeah. on the Supreme Court. And he surprised me by saying, yeah, that's something he could support. He suggested 18 years. 
He said it's got to be, term limits, he said, are fine, but it's got to be long, mm-hmm. long enough. He said the key is it's got to be long enough, he suggested again, 18 years, but long enough so that whoever it is, when they retire, they're not looking for another job. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so their decisions are not going to be influenced by their future employer. I, I think that's a perfectly fair aspect of it. You know, I, I know that the Supreme Court of India, um, when justices retire or step down from there, they're forbidden for practicing law again. Um, so uh, part of the point of life tenure is that it ensures that, that they'll never have to find future employment. Right. Uh, long terms would go a long way towards helping them. I think that as far as, uh, you know, that would require a constitutional amendment. Um, but in terms of something that would be healthier for the system, I think it's it's probably preferable to court packing. I'm sorry, you said it would. Re- that's right, it would require. Yeah, re- life tenure is is fixed in the Constitution for for judges, thankfully, um, because otherwise people could just fire them at will. <laughs> yeah, it seems an idea that both parties could get behind because each party would benefit from it. I think. Well, one of the nice I mean, things it was, you, you can't guarantee it, but um, you, you might want to get a. Republicans might want to get a solid Democrat off the court, and mm-hmm. if it's 18 years, that person's got to go, no matter how good they are. Absolutely, and you know, one thing that that, that Democrats and, and Republicans really agree on is the judicial nomination process sucks. The Supreme Court uh, confirmations are are this kabuki theater over whether or not a judge has ever had a view on Roe v. Wade ever in their life, which every single one of them has, even though they've never probably said it. Um, it turns into this sort of proxy fight for all these other issues. It's it's a huge waste of everybody's time. Um, if you could depoliticize that, if you could take a lot of the heat and energy out of that, um, I think it'd be pretty healthy for the country. Hmm. Okay, Bill Barr, you got another half an hour to go. <laughs> half an hour he could get from the Justice Department up to the oh, hill, right? Yeah, about easily. 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> Car's waiting. Getting in the car. <laughs> hey, Matt, we'll see if he shows up. Thanks so much. At least you showed up. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Again, you can follow Matt, as always, on NewRepublicNewRepublic.com. Carolyn Fredrickson joins us next from the American Constitution Society. Give us a quick break, and then we'll be right back with you. This is the Bill Press Show. Thursday, May 2nd, the Bill Press Show. Thanks for being part of it. And whether you're joining us on the radio, online, or on television, coast to coast, it's good to be with you as we uh, take a look at the headlines of the day. And we've been at it now for about an hour and a half, and it's always good to hear from you, Peter. Yep. Lots of comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, Luna says, (laughs) is there any doubt that Barr is going to interfere with the 14 investigations that have spun off of the Mueller investigation? That needs to be emphasized to the public. That's, That's a good point. There's still a lot of stuff happening out there. Uh, with regards to the Mueller investigation. Will uh, Attorney General Barr put his hands on that? Uh, we'll just have to see. Uh, Nanny says... the other- I was just looking for the number. Yeah. The president is now the subject of 16 different criminal and civil investigations. 16. Yeah. 16. 16, yeah. not 14. So. Right. Uh, there was a lot of talk about the underlying evidence uh, yesterday at the hearing. Uh, Nanny says the underlying evidence is the Mueller report. <laughs> in other words, just read the report. You've got everything you need right there. Uh, There's a lot in that report. 
There's a lot of really there. is. Uh, Smacky says Barr hasn't even read the whole report per the testimony that was, that was dragged that was out of him. Pretty obvious liars. yesterday. Yes, it's obvious he did not know what was in the report. Uh, and we spent uh, a, a part of the morning heaping praise on Maisie Hirono, Senator Hirono, uh, rightfully so. She did a great job. Luna says uh, coins a new nickname, which I kind of like. Oh. Right, Maisie Hirono. She started calling her. Amazing, Hirono. <laughs> I'm on board with that. I like that. Uh, if you have any comments on any topic at any time, of course, you can find us on Twitter at BP Show. I don't think that's the nickname Donald Trump will be calling her. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Peter, thank you. Um, yes, joining us now in studio, the president of the American Constitution Society and author of a new book, Fresh Out, just out this week, The Democracy Fix... Carolyn Fredrickson. Hi, Carolyn. Nice Hi. to see you. So I, one assumes by the title of the book that you believe our democracy is broken? Yes. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. It's been in significantly what damaged. what ways? Well, look, I mean, we, we know that in the last election, the last presidential election, number one, you had uh, 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 one candidate who won the, the popular vote who didn't become president, uh, and the other one uh, who lost the popular vote who did. So we have some real issues with democracy there. Second time in this young century. Exactly. Um, we had incredible numbers of incidents of voter suppression. Stacey Abrams, um, who should be governor of Georgia now, uh, clearly documented uh, voter suppression. It's not just in Georgia. It's been across the country. Um, and we have a system where our court system um, uh, has uh, decided to embrace the the uh, uh, efforts of plutocrats uh, to allow them to control government. They, you know, issuing decisions like Citizens United, um, mm -hmm. which flooded our campaigns with money. Uh, Shelby County, which destroyed the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, I think these are really significant issues that we on the left, we progressives need to wrestle with. As important as uh, as the policy matters that we debate about health care and the environment, which we can continue to debate, we actually have to really focus on the fundamentals of democracy. And does all of this result in fewer people feeling that they have a voice and therefore fewer people turning out to vote? Absolutely. It's, it's the combination of voter suppression, the efforts to shut down early voting, um, to dissuade people from voting in a variety of ways, make it hard to register. That, um, coupled with the fact that people with lots of money have, have much more say in the system, makes people think, why should I bother with all that effort? Because my vote counts for so little. And we need to counter both of those things, right? We need to make the system work for people so that they can show up and vote. Uh, and then we need to make them understand that their vote actually counts. Yeah. So let's talk about each of those, each of those um, areas because, I mean, they're all important, as you say, and they all contribute to... Um, the mess that we're in today, if you will, um, on the money front, you know, did you, we used to talk a lot more about the influence of money in politics. Um, that influence is still there. It just mm -hmm. doesn't seem. I mean, there was a big movement to 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 overturn um, the um, citizens United. citizens yeah. united. Say either by constitutional amendment or in the in the legislature. Don't hear much well, talk actually, about it anymore. Well, actually, it's still ongoing. And I would is say, it, well, you know, it, I was very heartened it's by... It's still a problem. It's still a problem. It's still a huge <clears throat> problem. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has, has made it harder to address significantly. But H.R. 1, which is the first bill that the Democrats in the House yeah, uh, introduced, yeah. did have a big section 
on um, on money and politics. And, you know, there are things we can still do, even though the Supreme Court has issued these very wrongheaded decisions. I will get to that when we talk uh-huh. about the courts yeah. and how we reverse that. But, um, you know, transparency is a really important part, right? Who are the donors behind the, the, the attack ads, the dark money that should be disclosed? You can fix that by having a, the, the Disclose Act um, could be passed, which is part of H.R. 1. Um, and as well as fixing the C4 rules in the tax code, which President Obama thought about and, you know, never really pursued. But that is a significant one. C4s have completely violated um, what their requirements are not to become political organizations. Right. So these are organizations that supposedly just do educational work. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, they're, they're only supposed to do a minority of their work that's political. And they can hide their donors, correct? Exactly. So their yeah. donors are hidden. And so you have these kind of black box inside a black box inside a black box. And you were talking about Kavanaugh <laughs> earlier, which I was happy to hear, um, uh, you know, an important <laughs> show like yours discussing the courts. Um, but, you know, behind all of those efforts supporting Kavanaugh and attacking those who, you know, who might have wanted a hearing for Merrick Garland, there were a couple Republicans who thought that Merrick Garland deserved a hearing like every other Supreme Court nominee yeah, has right. always had. Um, um, the Judicial Crisis Network is is a black box organization funded by shadowy donors. It's part of the empire run by Leonard Leo, who's been in charge of, of Donald Trump's list of judicial nominees um, you know, he's an impresario of dark magic. You know, mm-hmm. he 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 has all these groups and um, and they run attack ads and we don't really know who's funding them. But I think the American people really need to know. And part of the disclo- it's not good enough. Right. We actually want to be able to limit money in politics. But to the extent that people know, you know, Koch Brothers Inc. is running an ad in favor of Donald Trump, they can better evaluate whether Koch Brothers Inc. is who they want deciding who the president is instead of the name that they'd have now, which is, you know, Americans for a better future or, you know, a cleaner economy. And then, you know, it, they really know that they they promote oil and gas pollution. Okay. So money in politics is definitely one one area, right, where, mm-hmm. where we need a fix. Um, gerrymandering. Did you talk about yes, that? Yes, absolutely. So gerrymandering, and I love to, you know, I hate to give this example, but it's an important illustration. So, you know, Carl Rove led this effort. Um, uh, at Red map. Red map, right. So he was brilliant. He actually, he didn't hide it, right? He advertised oh, no, no, it. No, he no, wrote no. about it in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Democrats didn't pay too much attention. He basically said there are, you know, all we need really to control Congress is to flip a few state houses. We're going to look at these few state houses uh, that are close where there's a Republican governor. And then we can totally gerrymander the heck out of these these states. Um, and that was in 2010. So 2008, nine, he kind of announced it. He raised his money. He didn't have to raise that much money. Mm-mm. Targeted about, you know, eight, five or so. You so know. about 25 million, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really yeah. wasn't very much. And um, and it was very precision focused. And they they addressed like those those couple state Senate seats in Pennsylvania they needed and the few state house seats in Ohio and they flipped those state houses so that they were under Republican control. They had a Republican governor, and then they gerrymandered them such that Democrats could never win the proportion uh, of seats that they had in terms of the electorate. And we're still paying the price today. Right. So yeah. North Carolina, 2018, people thought, oh, that's a great, it was a blue wave, you know, Democrats really turned out. Well, in North Carolina, you know, it was a pretty evenly split vote. Democrats got almost 49 percent and and Republicans got about 51 percent. There are 13 seats in North Carolina. Uh, Almost. Well, we'll see. Nine of them at least, but 10 most likely 
went to the Republicans. I say that because there's yeah. another issue of Republican uh-huh. dirty dealing with the stealing of absentee ballots that's still ongoing. But so just to say they won 10 out of 13 with 51 percent of the vote. That's the that's what Karl Rove engineered. And that for that kind of for North Carolina to actually have the number of seats where you'd say third. So Democrats should get what six. They'd have to win, you know, an extra 13, 14 sure, percent of the sure. vote. So what's the answer? Well, I think the best answer is nonpartisan redistricting. Mm-hmm. I think you which know, several states have done which several you know, states have California, done California, California, California has done it and it has turned out really well. There are a number of other states that have done it through ballot initiative. Um, uh, Colorado is moving in that direction, Michigan. Um, and I think that's really important. So where where it can be done through ballot initiative, um, where it can't be done through ballot initiative, which is a number of the states, then I think it's, you know, look, I, I'm from a nonpartisan group, but I really believe in fair districts. I think to the extent that, you know, there has to be an effort to embrace a partisan or approach, that's going to be the Democrats. And, you know, getting them in control of the state houses, but then not not letting them just gerrymander in reverse, because I think that is the easiest thing for a Republican Party to undo when they come back into power. But instead, pressuring them for real Democratic reforms that so that the the districts can reflect the will of the voters. Yeah. Otherwise, and I've been involved in a lot of redistricting in in the California legislature. It um, otherwise you just get so leadership changes and then they're still drawing crooked lines exactly. or, well, or unfair I just lines don't think we one can, way or the other. can right. trust the Democrats in, in that regard. I mean, they're going to be very self-interested. So my district, and I might protect my district at the expense of a broader um, protection for what the voters want in my state. Right. Um, and that's we've seen that many times in the past. So I think, you know, really for small-D democracy, we need to pressure Democrats to support a nonpartisan process. Okay. So we're talking about campaign finance. We're talking about voter suppression. Talked about um, uh, um, redistricting, the courts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, well, if there's one branch that seems to be really out of control, it's almost. I mean, look at look at Mitch McConnell with his rubber stamp. Exactly. And even you know, with Democrats in control of the House, it doesn't doesn't impact what the Senate's able to do with just stacking. The federal courts right. with the most conservative people ever nominated to the exactly. courts. Exactly. It's, it's been really uh, disastrous. I mean, and some of them are so unqualified that they've had to even take their names out, right? right. Even the Republicans could not support right. them. That's there was only a couple of them who were yeah. who had to pull their names out. Others should have because they were also unqualified, but the Republicans didn't balk at those at those people. I, you know, so this is an area where I just think the Democrats have fallen down. And the left generally has not engaged um, and, mm-hmm. you know, no, we've seen right. yeah. President Obama, his first two years, he had the Senate and didn't really bother. And they seem to think that they couldn't um, walk and chew gum at the same time. They're working on the Affordable Care Act. They couldn't bother to fill the federal judiciary. Well, guess what happens? You pass the Affordable Care Act and the judges who are all the holdovers from Republican um, presidents, yeah. you know, yeah. strike it down. And, you know, that there was a no- huge number of vacancies that was left at the end of President Obama's presidency, you know, in part because he moved slowly, in part because, you know, Mitch McConnell is, you know, obstructionist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in chief. Um, but what he knew was that, you know, they would focus like a laser beam and that, you know, if there was anything that Trump did um, and would do, it was to get them names because they just outsourced it to the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. And they had their list and they nominated those people and they moved them through the process and all the Republicans got behind and there was no delay. 
And, you know, for a lot of people on the right, you know, when you, th you wonder, like, how could the religious right have gotten behind somebody like Donald Trump with all of his adultery, philandering, porn stars? Now, wait a minute. He yeah. celebrated National Prayer Day <laughs> last night. Yes, I know. He's a, he's, a, he's a good Christian when he's not groping women. Um, but, you know, that was, the, that was a bargain, right? That was the bargain that they struck. It's like, you give us our judges. Total. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. No, total. And, 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 he, and he has, right? Mm -hmm. He's delivered on that front. He has I mean, absolutely. The one thing you've got to say about Republicans, when they get power, right, they use it. Right. Well, and that's There's the no thesis of my book. There's no holding back. Right? Is, is that <laughs> that's right? That's exactly the Good. thesis of my book, which is <coughs> power before <coughs> policy. On the right, you know, over the long term, they have focused on building infrastructure to gain and keep power. And that's building those think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, you know, making sure that they have a pipeline of, of judicial nominees as well as a doctrine to apply that conveniently always turns out conservative outcomes, that they have um, a mechanism to control elections, and that they also control the media, right? They have their own media infrastructure, and they have a media so-called monitoring where they attack mainstream media, you know, as fake news, and they flood the, you know, the airwaves with their with their lies and misleading allegations. And, you know, so it's they basically, you know, looked at the different areas of how they can influence and hold on to power for the long term. And then we can get into policy. I think on the left, we need to do the same thing, right? How do we get power? And then how do we write rules that will keep the left and keep progressives and keep democracy in power for the long term? Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the media. Um, a few years ago, I read a, a book about that called Toxic Talk. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, they were they were very brilliant. There was this Lawrence Powell. Uh, uh, no, Lewis Powell. Lewis Powell. Yes. Memo. And one of the things he suggested to Richard Nixon was, we've got to control the media. So they went out and they bought radio stations and they created exactly. networks and they hired talent and they trained their talent. And that's still true exactly. today. And well, they, I write about that in the book. It's just they it's dominate, a long history. Dominate the public airwaves. And I, you right? know, I think one of the things that is really interesting that people don't remember, but maybe is worth <laughs> reflecting on now, is that Lewis Powell, before he became a Supreme Court justice, <laughs> he was a tobacco lawyer, but he was also uh, he served on the various committees at, for the Chamber of Commerce. He was very active. He wrote this memo about you know how at the how, request of Richard Nixon. Yeah, how do we? change the landscape for the long term for the right. Right. And um, and power. power. Yes, it was power. all about power. And, you know, so he laid out the court system, think tanks and, you know, basically idea, so-called idea generation. But they're very outcome oriented so ideas. Like heritage. Exactly. Cato. They all came out of yes. that. And and, and right wing talk radio. Mm -hmm. Alec and Rush Limbaugh, the whole thing. It really stems from that Lewis Powell memo. Yeah, absolutely. It's just people should go and read it. You can find it if you just Google it. Um, you know, go online. But it's just well, it's very it's about forty pages, but it's yeah. it's visionary. All right. So why isn't there something like that on the left? Well, that's what I tried to do with All my right, book. With a book, that's the book. That's it. There it is. Yeah, the democracy fix. But so this is just came out. Right? Yes, it just came out. Why have progressives or liberals been so slow? To you know, to really join the battle here. Well, you know, I think there are a couple almost, reasons. They haven't been on the on the playing field. Exactly. Right? Well, you know, one reason, you know, and I'll, I'll start with the, you know, the, the maybe the defensive reason that is it, we're we're much more diff diverse and diffuse, right? <laughs> the left is is a bigger tent. 
So by definition, it's a little bit harder, somewhat harder to get the cohesiveness um, on that happened on the right. Look, this was an effort that was led by the Chamber of Commerce and big corporations. And then they made a deal with the evangelical right and the moral majority um, and, you know, did this kind of bringing along kind of white working class folks that they appealed to on the basis of mm-hmm. racism mm-hmm. And, and, you know, social anxieties and got them to buy into or basically got them to vote for people who then passed economic plans that were completely against those people's interests. But that's, you know, there's it's very interesting. And I, I write about that some in the book, kind of how those how those forces came together and made this deal. So on the left, we, we were, we were a bit have a bit of harder task. But on but on the other hand, I think we also are just not taking it seriously enough. We just so for the courts, you know, you would think that we you know, we're the lawyers, right? That we're the we're the ones who 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 apparently, you know, fight in the courts more. And, you know, we just but we don't actually care about the judges or the doctrine in the same way, whereas they have thought, OK, we need to get those people who are going to issue the decisions that are going to be beneficial to large corporations and plutocrats. And in order to justify those decisions, we need to produce some kind of legal doctrine that's going to justify it, right? So along comes originalism, textualism, um, and you know they 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 use that terminology no matter sort of how they apply it, but just so long as it gives them an outcome that's you know going to drive the law in yeah. a conservative direction, and 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 right. we haven't engaged in the same way. No, I think you're right. I mean, that's that's why, in a sense, why we're Democrats. People, you know, more diverse, more fair, more willing to listen, to open, uh, open to other ideas. But um, in the end, the Republicans are the ones again. When they get power, look at the, look at it. Keep thinking of George Bush. You know, those massive tax cuts, which mm-hmm. really just popped up our deficit and 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 really hurt a lot of the middle class. But George Bush pushed those through in the first two months of his presidency. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, you didn't see Barack Obama well, get the power no. and move to move the progressive agenda. Well, so agenda. here's a good example um, of the differential kind of um, uh, hardball um, on the yeah. right and the left. So Bush moved his tax bill through with the with a uh, on reconciliation, and reconciliation is a process in Congress where you have expedited. Um, consideration and no filibuster in the Senate. 51 right? so votes. 51 votes. And um, he went right to it. He just didn't yeah. bother with trying to, to use totally. usual usual process. Shamelessly. So, but okay, it. the Affordable Care Act. Barack Obama resisted, 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 and spent a whole year trying to negotiate with Republicans, who, who even though Mitch McConnell announced at the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency, we're going to try and make him a one-term president, and we're not going right. to give him any victories. right. right. Um, and so it was basically a failed effort from the start, and they wasted a whole year, and then he eventually was forced to use reconciliation anyway. But in the meantime, the whole Tea Party had had grown up. You know, they yeah, had been pressuring yeah, Democrats. Yeah. Then they watered the bill down significantly because Joe Lieberman, you know, wanted X, Y, and Z. And um, and you could see it's that but, kind of engagement. So part of, Obama had this vision of wanting to be the first post-partisan president, which was just a total pipe dream and impossible. But enough of that. I want to ask you about, <laughs> because as head of the American Constitution Society, it seems to me, I want to get your take on it, that we are headed to a real constitutional crisis when Democrats now have control of the House. They want to do their work on oversight. And Donald Trump has said, no way, no how. We're not going to cooperate. We're not going to send any documents, really saying documents, any financial records, no witnesses are going to testify 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it really yeah. is kind of a clash of the titans here, isn't it? It's absolutely a clash of the titans. And this is, you know, where we talked about the attorney general earlier. Yeah. You know, this is the sort of the and the, the Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation, you know, so-called legal theory of unitary executive. You know, the president is all powerful above the law. Um, and doesn't have to submit to this kind of of oversight. And this is one of the reasons Kavanaugh was picked. You remember this was this was he he argued that the president doesn't have to submit to a subpoena. Um, and uh, so I think you know and this that's is, Bill Barr too. Exactly. That's that's the Attorney General, unitary executive. And he you know he auditioned for the job, writing that eighteen page memo where he said you know you can't commit obstruction because you're the president. President by definition can't commit right. obstruction. So I think you know the question is here is where do we go? Right. I think, you know, uh, Jerry Nadler is going to issue that subpoena. Um, Barr is going to resist. Um, and, you know, sort of question is what's next? I mean, I do think that it is really important to get the underlying evidence out to the public. And so they need to start calling in the other um, witnesses um, uh, who may be, you know, easier to get to come mm-hmm. in, um, who may be more worried about facing, you know, contempt. Um, but, you know, there, there, there aren't great avenues to enforce uh, subpoenas. Starting with Robert Mueller. Starting with Robert the, Mueller. Yeah. Absolutely starting. Right. And, you know, there's the banks, the insurance companies, and the others. Carolyn Fredrickson with us, head of the Con- American Constitution Society. The book available wherever you buy good books is The Democracy Fix. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks for writing. Thanks, Thanks so for much. coming in, too. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today, folks. This Tomorrow. Come on back. We'll be looking for you. Show.